0: Welcome to the Firefly Innovations Podcast, where we explore the frontiers of innovation in public health. To tackle global challenges, we need innovative public health-based approaches to transform communities, improve population health, and contribute to a sustainable economy. We will sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, academics, and the leaders needed to create widespread systems change. Coming from Firefly Innovations, based in the City University of New York, the largest, most diverse urban university in the world, here's Jared Hendry with today's guest.
1: Our next guest is the Social Innovations Director for Mercy Corps, as well as the manager of Mercy Corps Social Venture Fund. He is also an assistant adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And was recently invited to serve on the Board of Advisors for Firefly Innovations at the City University of New York School of Public Health and Health Policy. Previously, he served as the head of the Innovative Finance Program at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, where he provided equity and debt financing to businesses having a positive impact on nutrition, as well as incubation support for African food and agribusiness companies. He has also worked on international economic and development policy issues at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the U.S. Treasury Department, and the U.S. State Department. He has a Master's in Public Affairs from Princeton University and a Bachelor of Arts from Williams College. He joins us today from Washington, D.C., so please welcome Chris Walker. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to just get right into this. and. So you have worked in international development for a couple of decades now, and you've also worked with Mercy Corps for more than five years. I'm wondering, Chris, can you share a story from one of the investments that you've made in emerging markets that has had a major impact on you personally or on the people that project served?
2: Sure. Uh, Happy to share. Actually, I'd like to describe Three investments, if that's all right by you, uh, because when you, when you work in the field of impact investing, uh, it's quite an exciting field for um, for those of us who have a passion around having an impact. So it's hard to single out just one. Let me start from the more generic and get down to the more specific. Um, one area in which um, I've been involved in some very impactful investments is last mile distribution of socially beneficial products or services. So the idea here is that um, there have been so many really potentially impactful products that have been created that never reach those who most need them. Um, And these are often people who either live in uh, more remote rural areas where there's poor infrastructure connections or uh, people who live in low income neighborhoods uh, in cities and they're just underserved by businesses and by governments. Um, So the question is, how do you get these beneficial products to the people who need them? Uh, I used to work in the nutrition sector, and this was a challenge that we ran into quite frequently, where there are really good food products that have been developed that will address malnutrition. The challenge from a business standpoint was getting them to the people who need them, making sure that these products were accessible, available, uh, and affordable. So, uh, in my time at Mercy Corps, I've had the opportunity to be involved in some investments around last mile distribution solutions, uh, including one called Soka Watch that's operating in East Africa that works with very small shop owners uh, and provides, um, makes sure that the the products um, that these shop owners generally stock are available to them whenever they need it. They've been involved in ensuring distribution of, of health commodities, among others. And then importantly, they're providing financing to the shop owners so that they can afford to purchase the inventory that they need and make more money over time. Um, So that's one area that I find quite exciting. Uh, A second area is micro insurance. So I think we're fortunate enough to live in countries in the West where uh, insurance is readily available for the most part. Um, And it's certainly something that's very helpful in addressing risks that we all face in our lives. When you are poor, you live in a country where insurance is not prevalent, where it's not affordable, um, it's harder to deal with some of the risks, and that affects people's behavior. Um, There's some interesting research going on around small farmers, for instance, uh, and the research is indicating that if you provide farmers with insurance against some of the risks that they face, they will adopt new practices and new techniques that will allow them to grow more crops over time, um, feed themselves and their family, and make more income. So if you can address this risk constraint through insurance, it it can be very beneficial and impactful. So we've made a couple of investments in that area, one in insuring farmers against climate-related risk, and another that's providing insurance for health and life Um, So, you know, again, trying to reach a customer base that normally doesn't have access to regular insurance products. Um, The final investment I wanted to talk about is with a specific organization called Meds and Food for Kids, or MFK. It's actually a not-for-profit organization that operates in Haiti. Uh, For years, it had been producing something called Ready to Use Therapeutic Food, which is a type of food that uh, when provided to severely malnourished children can literally bring them back to life in the matter of weeks without having to hospitalize children. Uh, This organization had been uh, producing uh, small amounts of ready to use therapeutic food in a rehabilitated house. And they saw an opportunity to professionalize and scale up their production uh, by building a factory and uh, getting it certified um, so that they could sell to major organizations like UNICEF, but they needed money to build that factory. So we worked, uh, when I was at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, we uh, collaborated with an impact investment firm called LGT uh, to provide a loan to this not-for-profit organization so that they could build the factory, which they did in less than a year and began producing ready-to-use therapeutic foods. Um, this is something that normally investors would consider very risky. Uh, Haiti is a risky environment. Lending to a not-for-profit that's trying to produce and sell something can be considered risky. Uh, but we saw real value both from an impact standpoint, and we were impressed with this organization and how it operated and its uh, determination to make this work. Um, they took on the loan, built the factory, successfully repaid the loan. Um, and as a result of their their new factory and their ability to produce at a greater scale. They were able to export. They were able to serve not just people in Haiti. I think they reached over 50,000 food insecure Haitians with the products that they were producing, but also exported to, I believe, 14 other countries. Um, So really impressive impact and um, uh, by an organization that, again, investors might have overlooked um, so when we talk about investing for impact in emerging markets, obviously we do a lot of investing in for-profit companies, but there are some not-for-profit organizations as well that generate revenues that can take on a loan. So there are multiple ways in which investors can deliver impact.
1: You've talked about three pretty incredible projects that have really neat stories. My question to you, Chris, is that's got to be difficult to determine which projects are worth funding. And which projects maybe don't meet that cutoff? So how do you determine which projects meet that cutoff for you? And what kind of knowledge does a person need in order to make that kind of decision appropriately? Yes, I, you know, that is the probably
2: the most significant challenge about investing is deciding amongst the many, many options, which ones do you want to support with the capital that you have available? Uh, so. Let me talk from the perspective of the niche within the investment marketplace that I work. Um, I I work right now with Mercy Corps, and we have an impact investing arm called Mercy Corps Ventures. We invest at a very early stage in businesses, scalable ventures started by entrepreneurs. Um, Entrepreneurs often struggle to get capital at a very early stage because they haven't really proven out their business yet. Um, and, and there aren't many investors who provide small amounts of capital to these entrepreneurs. So that's where we invest. That's where we sit within the spectrum of impact investors. Uh, so within that, um, when we look at entrepreneurs, first, a business uh, that intends to have an impact um, can really only have an impact at scale if the business succeeds and grows over time. That's that's the most prominent way in which businesses increase their impact over time. So first, we need to make sure that this is a business that has a good prospect of growing and succeeding financially. If they can do that, then they can spread their impact. Um, so we are looking first and foremost for really good, determined entrepreneurs. We know that at a very early stage, their what their uh, business is will most likely evolve Substantially over time. But we're also looking for entrepreneurs who have a real dedication to achieving an impact. And that's core to what they're doing. In other words, they're setting up their business with the intent of delivering positive social or environmental impact. And they see a business approach as the best way of delivering that impact. So we want to understand how central impact is to that entrepreneur. Now, there are obviously things when we evaluate the quality of entrepreneur that we can look at, for instance, you know, is this their first time doing it? Do they have experience in the past? Do they have co-founders in the company that bring a lot of uh, complementary experience to them? But really, the, the ability and the determination of the entrepreneur are, are very important, now, We also rely quite a lot on colleagues at Mercy Corps and in col- folks in our networks who have a lot of um, local knowledge and local networks to give us a better sense of is this business model viable? Um, is does the entrepreneur know what they're doing? Um, so, so that's very important to us. Um, and then finally. It's not just about investing capital. You know, we could take the approach that we'll provide capital, invest in this entrepreneur, and then just be hands-off and, and see what happens. Uh, but we think, especially at an early stage, um, capital is the first thing, of course, that a business needs to keep growing. But then it, once that capital need is met initially, there's quite a lot of other support that can benefit an entrepreneur. And so we try to provide um post what we call post investment support. So other types of support to help the entrepreneur and that person's business grow. And that often means making introductions to other investors, making introductions to people in our network, helping to raise the visibility of the company so that they can attract more customers, uh, and then providing uh, any number of types of, of business support. Uh, to those entrepreneurs to help them grow for us, that really reduces the risk um, because we can provide a whole package of support uh, to, to bolster the growth of that company. Um, and then it's again, I've been focusing my answer on business growth as a as a way to achieve impact, but we also want to continue to measure and manage for impact and ensure that this company, as it grows, is delivering impact. So we focus quite a lot on how we can assess impact and on helping the entrepreneurs better understand their customer base and whether what they're selling is actually benefiting that customer or
1: not. You mentioned that a good entrepreneur is marked by ability and dedication. What other qualities do you look for in a good entrepreneur?
2: Ability to accept feedback. Um, uh, surrounding themselves with quality advisors who can provide that feedback, Um, a certain amount of humility (laughs) combined with a determination. Um, Again, an entrepreneur, especially at an early stage where we invest, uh, can have an incredible idea. Um, But once that idea hits the marketplace, things change. And it's important that the entrepreneur be open to receiving feedback from others and open to asking for and, and receiving support, and help, and advice, and then acting on it. Um, there are many different personalities, I find, that, that make a good entrepreneur, um,
1: but those are some of the characteristics that we often see leading to more success. You've spoken a lot already about impact investing, and you obviously have a deep passion for this. Do you know where that passion comes from? Oh boy, that, that is a great question. I,
2: you know, I can go back w- well back in my life and <laughs> kind of plumb the depths of my youth. I mean you know, first of all, I would say both sides of my family have always been socially minded. So I grew up within that environment. Um, and both of my parents and many of my closest relatives are in the education field. So I grew up surrounded by teachers and educators and people who really valued um, valued education, but as a way for people to improve their own lives. Um, that that's I'd say one strain of it. Um, I remember when I was nine or ten years old, a very good family, a friend, good family friend of ours, uh, gave us a gift of a subscription to National Geographic. And I just devoured it and became a loyal reader of National Geographic throughout my childhood and uh, became really interested in environmental issues. Uh, so when I um, went to college, you know, I was very interested in, in studying environmental issues. Uh, when I went to graduate school, my intent was to focus on on some intersection of government policy and the environment and then took a class in international development and. Um, which, at its core, is focused on how do you reduce poverty and improve the quality of life for everyone, and became hooked on that. Uh, and I've spent my entire career more or less in that field.
1: Why did you choose to operate in the impact investment space specifically?
2: Yeah, you know i um I started my career postgraduate school working in the U.S. government, um, but on the economic side of things. So as a development economist, uh, you know, I spent a good chunk of that time in the U.S. government working for the U.S. Treasury, which was really focused on how uh, international capital flows can influence development and reduce poverty. Um, and I think I've I've always been more mathematically inclined, uh, quantitatively inclined, and so investment involves quite a lot of that. Uh, it involves knowledge, um, obviously, of finance and of uh, being somewhat numerate, um, in understanding the broader economic context in which businesses operate. So I became more attracted to that. I do think, obviously, there there, um, there are many things that we need to do as a society to address the big challenges that we're facing. You know, Government certainly is central to that and good policies. Um, advocates play a very significant role, um, academics and researchers. Um, but money also really plays a significant role. And money can be used for good, for bad, or you know, in a neutral way. Um, but I was attracted to the idea that capital flows could be utilized to address the world's biggest challenges. Uh, and it shouldn't just sit on the sidelines; we should make active decisions around how to use money uh for more social or
1: environmental good. Was that an innovative perspective, an idea when it first came to you?
2: You know I don't think so um i, I clearly absorbed it from somewhere uh in, in from observation um, but you know what was interesting i think when i when I entered the the u s government i I was really blown away by the quality of the people that I worked with. Um, their just raw intelligence, their passion for, for achieving a mission, um, and, and their just breadth of knowledge about what works and what doesn't. And so many of these people were involved in economics and finance, um, but, but had so many other broad interests that they brought to, to their jobs. Um, but, but at the core was, was a passion for addressing the world's problems. Uh, but by using economics and finance to do that. Um, So I think I I was really inspired by,
1: by their perspectives. I think we, for so long, have heard this negative perspective on bureaucrats, maybe more so in the U.S. than Canada or in Europe. But I think that may be a story that doesn't get told very often is the quality of the people in those institutions that are showing up every day trying to make a difference. And so it's nice to hear that perspective, Chris.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, they're still some of the brightest, most uh, motivated and passionate people I've ever worked with. Um, you know, we've, we've been very fortunate to have folks
1: like that uh, attracted to government service. And I don't work in government, so I'm not even trying to pump my own tires. <laughs> just to be clear. Right.
2: Um, Yeah. And, you know, it is, it's a very, it can be a very exciting career path for for people, um, you know, who who have that interest in in, in improving the public good. Um, And certainly it can be an intellectually fascinating role. Obviously you have to find the right organization, the right part of government, um, the right offices with the right people. But when you do that, uh, yeah, it's, there, there's really an incredible number of very dedicated people trying to make the country and the world a better place.
1: You've mentioned earlier in the episode about impact. I'm wondering how can a person or an entrepreneur or a country scale up that impact through entrepreneurship, for example?
2: Ah, That is a great question. And it's actually something that I've spent the last five years at Mercy Corps working quite a lot on, um, again, we've had the opportunity uh, to provide capital to a whole range of social entrepreneurs. Um, With our impact investment arm, we provide capital to for-profit companies, um, but we've also funded not-for-profit social enterprises that generate revenues. And we've seen a whole range of strategies for scaling up impact. You know, the most obvious one that, that, that would occur to, to, to anyone is, well, if you run an organization that's having an impact, build that organization into a bigger organization. <laughs> Grow it. Um, and, yeah. and it can have more impact. And we clearly see that that is the strategy if you're a for-profit company. That That's the idea. Um, we've seen a whole range of strategies on the not-for-profit social enterprise side. So these are organizations that operate um, with, you know, in, in business-like ways to, to generate impact, and many but not all um, generate some revenues as they do so. Um, but that, that's almost immaterial. Really, the idea is that, that individuals have founded these organizations to address big challenges and big problems, They're trying to address those challenges in the best ways that they can find, and they're being very entrepreneurial about the solutions. So there are—that is certainly one strategy—is to build your not-for-profit social enterprise into a bigger one. But there are also other strategies available to entrepreneurs, and we've seen combinations of these strategies being pursued by single organizations. Um, As examples, if you've landed on a very good approach—a service, a product that can address a big problem—can you get the Uh, governments to adopt it and implement it at scale? How about encouraging other organizations to replicate what you're doing? Um, If you don't have intentions of, say, expanding geographically, can you build a coalition of other organizations that are trying to tackle the same problem but in different geographies and share what you've learned, what works, and have them replicate it? Um, Can you work through partners to expand your impact? Um, We have uh, worked with uh, Duke University's Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship as well as partners at the Skoll Foundation and the U.S. Agency for International Development over the last few years on a series of studies called Scaling Pathways. And if you're interested in this topic, I'd encourage anyone to go to scalingpathways.com and check out the reports. Um, but the, the researchers at Duke have done an incredible job of interviewing social entrepreneurs about what works and what doesn't to help them scale up their impact. And, and they're sharing that in, in a really, I think, um, practical way so that if you are running an organization, you can learn from your peers through these reports about what works and what doesn't. Um, but we called it scaling pathways because, as I, as I mentioned, there are multiple pathways to scaling up impact other than building your organization to a, into a bigger one.
1: For the listeners, we will link to scalingpathways.com in the show notes as well. So if you're interested, you can check that out there. Chris, how important do you think partnerships or coalitions are in achieving social impact? You know, I think they are extraordinarily important
2: if if done well and done right. Um, it certainly takes quite a lot of work to make a partnership function but if you can do it, it can really magnify uh, what an individual or a single organization can do on its own. Um, So I I do think it's very important. We've seen this strategy play out any number of times. It doesn't always work with specific partners. So as an entrepreneur, you have to be open to the fact that some partnerships may not work well in the end. They may not come to fruition, uh, but when they do, they can really, really have an extraordinary impact. Uh, And we've seen some of the best entrepreneurs always searching for um, the type of partner that can really expand what they're doing and complement what they're doing. And as they develop and grow as an entrepreneurial organization, often new types of partners emerge that they hadn't thought of initially that can really um, help them out along the way. Uh, I can give you one example. Um, We had supported uh, a not-for-profit social enterprise called Evidence Action, uh, which um, has several different initiatives. We had funded an initiative where they uh, place chlorine dispensers at water points in rural areas in East Africa. The idea here is that often people go to a spring or a well to collect water uh, for drinking for their families, and it's very easy for that water to get contaminated and make people ill. And one of the evidence action and, and a lot of different researchers have demonstrated that you know, one of the most effective ways to make water safe to drink is to put chlorine in it. We, you know, we chlorinate our water in the U.S., for instance. The question was, how do you deliver chlorine to people in a cost-effective way and in a way that people actually utilize it? And One of the best approaches that they have found is to build a very simple dispenser right next to where people gather their water. They bring a big can or a jug for their water. They put one squirt of chlorine in on the water, and it will keep it safe for, I think, for up to three days, uh, safe to drink. Uh and Evidence Action, in expanding its approach, found that they needed any number of partnerships to really do this at greater scale. Um, one of the key partners is government. Um, they were looking for local government health officials to help spread the word about the importance of this. Those officials are trusted in their communities. Um, people respect their health advice. And if Evidence Action could recruit them to spread the word about the benefits of chlorinating water, uh, they could get more people to use it and their impact would be expanded. But they also looked for partnerships with other not-for-profit organizations that could offer some component of, of their approach so that they Evidence Action itself did not have to um, finance everything uh, and did not have to hire people to deliver every part of its service. It could focus on what it did best and use partners to deliver other pieces of the service. So I think that's a very um, you know, classic way for an entrepreneurial organization to think. Um, always striving to find a way to scale up impact and to do it at lower costs so that their scarce funding uh, can be utilized as
1: effectively as possible. On the opposite end of that question, what do you think are the biggest barriers that are holding entrepreneurs back from scaling?
2: You know, there are um, obviously quite a few when you're trying to start a new organization. It's actually finding a way to deliver whatever it is you are in business of doing in a way that's cost effective um, because money is always scarce. And so that's a second challenge is how do you raise the capital that you need to raise to deliver what you're going to deliver? Um, A third often is uh, challenges around understanding customer needs. Um, It's important to listen to your customer, uh, to get feedback from your customer about what they really want. And if you're not doing that, then whatever it is you're trying to deliver is probably not going to be utilized um, or valued um, by the people you're trying to reach. So those are just some of the more common challenges. There, uh, you know, When you try to deliver something, things like logistics, transportation, infrastructure, financing, they all come into play. Marketing, behavior change. Um, we often see entrepreneurs who have some incredible new technology. And I'll use technology in the broadest terms. You know, it could be a water filter. It could be an app for a mobile phone. Um, But they spend a lot of time and effort working on creating a new technology. Um, That's really just the beginning of an effort to have impact. Um, Because once the technology is there, it can just easily sit on the shelf unless you have a business plan around it that works. You know, I often think of the number of times through my career that I've heard people uh, touting a new water filtration technology that 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 will help, and yet we still have problems with clean drinking water. Um, we have a lot of technologies out there. It's how do you get them to people in a way that they will accept it and use it um,
1: and continue using it over time. I'm reading Good Economics for Hard Times, and it discusses a lot of these common misconceptions that we have. One of them was. The mosquito uh, bug spray treated mosquito netting, Mm
2: -hmm. it
1: it was originally given out in some kind of partnership deal where the people that were receiving the mosquito netting would have to subsidize some portion of the cost. Anyway, there was a randomized controlled trial where they compared that method versus just giving out this bug spray treated mosquito netting. To people and they realized that there was no difference in use. Because I think when the study started out, the, the authors kind of thought that, or the people who were giving the mosquito nets away thought that they wouldn't get utilized unless people were paying for them. Mm-hmm. And they found that implementing that change and just distributing these mosquito nets led to, I believe, 450 million lives saved over the period of 15 or 20 years. What kind of Innovation or technology like that—that's a, a massive lifesaver—is coming down the pipeline, or, or what can you see on the horizon that's similar to that? Oh boy, that—that uh, that is a great question. Well, first let me let me
2: comment just around the what you had mentioned about randomized control trials, and this that itself is a very interesting innovation in. Um, the social sector, the international development sector, um, so innovative that that the major proponents of it won the Nobel Prize for Economics last year. Um, out of recognition that there had been a, a dearth of really rigorous evidence around what works and what doesn't, and why should we be funding things where we don't know if they have an impact or not? Now, uh, you know, there's been some pushback and some. Um, debate around whether randomized control trials are affordable and can be delivered and uh, conducted in in all circumstances but but regardless the, that sort of very rigorous approach to gathering evidence of what works um, has really uh, been one of the greatest innovations that we've seen in development economics and again that thus the recognition by the Nobel Committee and um, there you know there are people who are working on any number of innovations so much attention now is focused on the fact that uh, mobile phones have really become almost ubiquitous. Not everybody has them, but so many people at least have access to a mobile phone um, it, it, all over the world and that technology in people's hands um, is an incredible platform to deliver information to deliver um, loans to um, financial services, um, you know, weather data, market data, pricing information for farmers, um, that connectivity has really been transformational. So, so much attention these days rightly has been focused on, well, how can you use this technology for good? So, that's been one of the more recent innovations that's really had an impact. Um, It's really hard to discern, I'd say at this stage, what might be the most transformative in the next five to 10 years. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I wish I had a crystal ball and could say, um, but we certainly would anticipate that quite a few of these innovations would use um, either the mobile phone or, or be somewhat based on internet technology. Um, and that can really
1: um, play, play a critical role in improving people's livelihoods. In the impact investment space, what are the big opportunities that aren't getting attention that should be?
2: Yeah, well I would I started this uh our discussion mentioning last mile distribution. You know, I think it's getting more attention now in logistics. You know, these are things that kind of sit behind the scenes a bit. It's really sexy to talk about your new technology, um but unless it reaches people's hands, what good does it do, does it do? Uh, to really have an impact, you need to focus on things like distribution and logistics. We're starting to see more innovations in that area. Some of our more successful investments are in that sector. Um, So that's been personally very exciting for me to to see. Um, We recently made an investment in a company that works in the handicraft and artisan sector. Um, This is one that has very little impact investing flowing into, into the sector. Um, but I do believe that there is some potential there for impact. Um, we see so many people, um, getting income for, from producing handicrafts or artisanal products and selling them into local markets and into international markets. And these are often jobs that can be done from home, uh, from rural areas. Um women are disproportionately employed in the sector uh so providing capital there could really have uh you know an incredible impact if if invested in the right way and so it's a sector that we're we're getting to know through this company that we that we recently invested in, and I think does have quite a lot of potential but it has been a bit under the radar screen for many investors.
1: We've spoken a lot about impact and you've brought up randomized controlled trials. How do you measure the social impact you're having through a venture yeah this is one of the biggest challenges
2: facing the impact investment community um, you know randomized control trials can be very appropriate for grant funded multi-year projects uh, for businesses that are having to constantly adapt to their customer needs uh, randomized control trials is often not the right sort of approach but that does not. Eliminate the need for good data on what works and what doesn't and what delivers impact. So if you go to any conference on impact investing, you'll have multiple choices of panels to attend and talks to listen to around measuring and managing for impact. Um, So there's a huge amount of attention being paid to this, rightly so. It's an incredibly important thing to do and and it's very challenging to find effective ways of doing it. Um, but we're seeing some some real progress in the sector um, being made. So we we try to keep abreast of the latest developments and try to stay at the cutting edge of what, what works in assessing impact. Um, I'll call out a couple of things that I think we've seen that have been um, really influential and are being more and more adopted. I think at the highest level, many more organizations now are citing their impact in relation to the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm-hmm. These are a series of goals that the international community adopted in 2015 with, with the objective of achieving the goals by 2030. So social entrepreneurs are often placing themselves um, against one or more of these goals so that investors can understand where the, the entrepreneurs intend to have an impact. Um, in terms of actually measuring that impact, we need frameworks for doing that. Um, the, the initiative that we've seen really getting the most traction now is something called the impact management project, it has been a consortium of consortium of impact investors looking for best practices for measuring impact. They have a uh, five components of impact. So it's looking at things like, well, what exactly is the impact that you want to achieve? Um, who do you hope to have an impact on, um, how much of an impact you hope to have on each individual? Um, so it's uh, um, looking at the, the risk of, of not delivering an impact through through your approach, uh, and also looking at the contribution that what you're doing can have. In other words, through your investment, are you going to see better results than what would have happened without your investment? Um, so that framing has been, I think, very influential, and, and we we look to that um, to frame our own impact measurement. Um, we also think it's important not just to measure or assess uh, the impact that you as an investor are having, or from the standpoint of an entrepreneur, that the the business is having. It's also important to manage based on the data that you're receiving about the impact that that you're having or not having, so that you can use that data to make better decisions to better serve your customers over time. So we actually like the terminology impact management um, instead of impact measurement. Um, The the other thing that we've been um, intrigued by and have been experimenting with is an approach um, uh, pioneered by one of the early impact investors called Acumen. Uh, The approach is called lean data. And it's, its essence is really... Um, encouraging businesses to do brief surveys using mobile phones, surveying their customers to get feedback from their customers around their satisfaction with the company's products or services. And through those surveys, you can get quite a lot of data around who your customers are, what their income levels might be, open-ended feedback around how you can improve your services, but also get at the impact that your products or services are having on, on your individual customers. So it's a way to, to get some impact data and, as the term says, lean data in a lean way. So in a in a quick, efficient, low-cost way. So we've been experimenting with that. Um, and I think we'll we'll see any number of other innovations in the future around how entrepreneurs and investors can better assess their impact. Um, It's central and crucial to to building a field and to helping people with money make better decisions about how to allocate that money so it's being allocated towards those causes or issues that they care about the most um, and within that cause or issue area towards the organizations that are going to deliver the most impact for dollar that they receive.
1: I'm sure that entrepreneurs in The emerging world constantly face these major challenges on pretty much a daily basis, just big challenges. And so I'm wondering what can entrepreneurs in maybe more stable environments, North America, Europe, for example, what can we learn from those individuals? Quite a lot, actually.
2: Um, as you mentioned, so many entrepreneurs in other markets and other countries face such a difficult operating environment, can face any number of disruptions to what they're trying to do. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's incredible to see how, uh, adaptive, um, entrepreneurs can be, um, how agile they can be in responding to disruptions. Um, so it's, let me just, um, cite a couple of things that that might help listeners who are interested in this issue. Um, I mentioned earlier in our discussion that we've collaborated with Duke University's Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship on the Scaling Pathways series of studies. Uh, When uh, the coronavirus crisis hit, they started interviewing uh, entrepreneurs about how they have dealt with mass disruptions to their business. And these interviews are online. They're very interesting to listen to. What's important to keep in mind is that while it actually highlights how fortunate we've always been, for instance, in the U.S. or Canada, um, certainly there are disruptions. but, But COVID has been one of the biggest ones that entrepreneurs have had to deal with. And when you start talking to entrepreneurs in other markets... They've often dealt with disruptions in the past, whether they've been electoral violence, you know, political violence around an election, or uh, civil war, or conflict, or natural disaster. Um, how they have dealt with that and and um, built resilience in their business over time is really impressive. So I do feel like we have quite a lot to learn from entrepreneurs elsewhere. Um, if you're interested in reading a book around this Uh, the author dave eggers wrote a book a few years ago called the monk of mocha about a yemeni american who decided to build a business um, rehabilitating traditional coffee farms in yemen and helping those farmers export their very high quality coffee into western markets and he started his business, went over to Yemen, and was trying to get his first shipment of coffee out of Yemen when civil war broke out there. And the book itself is about the incredible resilience that entrepreneurs can show in the face of all kinds of challenges and disruptions and crises.
1: Chris, I've heard you talk about scaling through mass disruption in the research that I've done on you. How do we do that?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I think we're all kind of learning our way through that. Um, you know, one of the things where I sit, again, this I sit on the kind of impact investment, the capital allocation side of the, the equation. Um, there has been quite a lot of talk around the need that entrepreneurs have for capital to see them through this disruption. You know, in, in certain countries, um, U.S. being one of them, there's been quite a lot of government financing Uh, emergency financing for businesses. Um, That's not always possible to do in in other countries where those sorts of resources are not readily available to governments. Um, The impact investment community has um, come together to look for ways in which investors can help plug some of that gap and help out entrepreneurs um, to see them through this crisis um, and to address their, their needs for capital, for financing, to see them through it. Um, there there are quite a few very good initiatives out there already. I think there's a lot more that could be done. Um, it's something that a lot of people are actively engaged on, trying to determine um, ways in which investors can play a role here.
1: You've spoken about how those capital flows may have changed due to the coronavirus. Is there anything else that investments in emerging markets, has it changed in any other way?
2: Yeah, I think one of the bigger issues or trends that we've seen is that you know investors have investments in their portfolio already. They've invested in businesses or projects, um, and they're always looking for new investments to make. And one of the trends that we have seen is that um, investors are using the capital that they have available to finance businesses that are already in their, business, their investment portfolio rather than looking for new businesses to invest into. And that's the result of two things. One is they know the businesses well in their portfolio. They're already invested in them. They have something at stake and they have a really good understanding of when those entrepreneurs can utilize more capital well. And obviously they want to see these businesses survive. Um, so they're reallocating capital towards their current investments and they've stopped searching for newer ones. The other, the other reason why is in times of crisis, it can be harder to discern which businesses might survive the crisis and which ones might not. Um, there are certainly good businesses out there to invest into. We often see some of the biggest and, and most vibrant businesses started up during crises in surviving them. So there are opportunities out there. It's just harder from an investment standpoint to identify which ones those might be. So those two factors have led to uh, investors allocating more of their capital towards existing businesses in their portfolio, which leaves you know entrepreneurs who have very good ideas um, that can be very helpful. Um, it makes it a lot tougher for them at this time to find the capital that they need. Not impossible. There are still investors out there looking to invest, um, but, but not as much capital is available as was available, say, six months ago
1: before the crisis began. What can those entrepreneurs do to attract that capital in a world where that capital has become more scarce?
2: Entrepreneurs always have to be persistent when raising capital. It is never an easy path in that. Persistence is called for even more now. Um, But it's not just about attracting new capital. Um, We've seen many really savvy entrepreneurs say, look, we know that this is going to be a challenging environment to bring in new money. We need to focus on cutting our costs and on serving our existing customers and generating more revenues to see us through. So we've seen good entrepreneurs make very quick and decisive decisions take quick and decisive action to cut their costs, to extend the amount of time that they can survive with the current money that they have, Um, still seeking investment, but knowing that it might be a a tougher time to raise capital, and it may be longer than expected before they can bring in new money.
1: So they need to focus on taking action now um, before it becomes too late. In terms of impact investing in the developing world, where are you hopeful?
2: Where do I, where am I hopeful? You know, there are some real hubs that have emerged for impact investment. Um, Not, this is not a comprehensive list, but it's been very impressive to see the number of entrepreneurs who want to start up businesses in Kenya, in Nairobi. And a whole ecosystem has developed around this. Uh, India, another area where impact investing and social enterprise has really taken off. Um, Nigeria is, is, we're seeing a surge there, uh, Colombia as well. This again, non-inclusive list, but these are some of the the more prominent hubs. And and it goes to show as well, the importance of having an ecosystem that surrounds entrepreneurs. Um, it's challenging as an investor to invest in a country where there is very little, in the way of an ecosystem, because businesses need far more than just one investor. They need other investors. As a business grows, it needs different types of investors to come in. It needs banks um, so that the business can borrow money. Um, There are all kinds of consulting firms and support organizations that play crucial roles in helping businesses grow. In markets where those are absent, it's just a much tougher road for entrepreneurs to follow. Not impossible, but but you just don't see as much activity um, in some of these hubs where there is an ecosystem that's really evolved and grown. You just see a lot more capital engaged and you see a lot more entrepreneurs trying to get new ideas off the ground. So I do see hope in more markets than the ones I just named, but those are areas where we have seen really interesting entrepreneurial activity emerging
1: um, in the social enterprise sector. You mentioned India, and you have lived and worked in Bombay, India. And at that time, you were involved in a private ambulance service. Can you just tell us a bit about that business?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is actually how I got my start uh, in the field of impact investing and social enterprise. I had left my job in the US government because I wanted to you know, help to build something and um, get, my, uh, get involved uh, at the ground level in, in building a social enterprise. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do a one-year fellowship with an impact investment firm uh, called Acumen. And they sent me to go work for an ambulance company in India that they had invested in. Um, so I, I uh, spent my year um, really working closely with the CEO and at the time, what was a pretty small company, trying to market ambulance services in a city that had very little experience with formal um, ambulance businesses and ambulances that could be uh, contacted 24 hours a day, seven days a week by phone. That was really the unique selling point of, of the business that I worked for is that they had ambulances equipped with modern medical equipment with trained personnel that anybody regardless of income could utilize um, at any time of the day or night and that really hadn't existed um, so it was a, a obviously a very challenging environment to, to build a business in um, but but an incredibly exciting one and uh, you know a business run by just stellar entrepreneurs that I learned a huge amount from about what it takes uh, to persevere and to, to realize a vision in um, that That business at the time, I think when I arrived, it had around 20 ambulances on the road and was starting to expand a bit geographically. Uh, The capital that they had received allowed them to add another 50 or so ambulances to their fleet. So really, you know, significant growth. Mm -hmm. Um, But they had bigger ambitions than to serve just one city. They wanted to serve the entire country of India and then take their model globally. Uh, and what's been really exciting to me to see is, is the realization of that vision. Um, they have grown quite large over the years. Uh, I think they now have over 3,000 ambulances on the road around India. Um, wow. They played a crucial role in um, helping pregnant women get to the hospital. Uh, they, they say they've now helped deliver over a quarter million babies Uh, We're serving tens of millions of people around the country. So really amazing impact. Um, Again, all started by local entrepreneurs who had a vision, uh, did not want to wait around for uh, government to solve a problem, and instead just took action themselves
1: and, and saw it through. What did you learn from that experience that you still apply today?
2: Yeah, oh, so many things. I mean, one of the more, I, I remember the, the the CEO telling me at the time, you know, I came out of a very analytical job in the U.S. government, you know, prepare memos, do a lot of research, do a lot of analysis. And I remember her telling me, look, you just have to get out there and try something and see if customers like it or not and see if it has has the intended effect. You know, um, obviously you have to think through things, but but don't overanalyze you need to get feedback from the market about what works and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, working in environments that are always under-resourced, it's, it's really important to get feedback quickly about what, what works and what doesn't and not spend too much time building the perfect thing that once you launch it into the marketplace, no one's going to, to want. Um, so that was one crucial thing that I learned. Um, sales skills... You know, running a business like that, um, you know, the entrepreneurs were constantly having to sell, you know, sell to get advisors to advise them, to build business partnerships, to get individuals to call the ambulance company when they needed it. Um, you know, sales is just part of everything. Um, and how do you do that better? How, how do you pitch your business and how do you make a convincing sales pitch to, to, to sell? I, you know, that was the the just... Something that, that I'm constantly thinking about improving on, and uh, in, and in learn just the real importance
1: of of, of that skill set. Chris is a very brand new entrepreneur. Myself, I found the sales piece to be the hardest and least intuitive component to being in business, and so I can really empathize with that lesson. Yeah, it's um,
2: and again, it's something see so often with, with new entrepreneurs, they've come out of a certain background. They may be experts in technology or data or um, finance. Uh, but to build a business, you have to be able to sell something to somebody. And so having those sales skills are really important. And being able to understand you know, who your audience is, who you're trying to sell to, what their problems are that you could solve. Um, and then really um, demonstrating who you are as an individual. You know, it, I think authenticity is really important. You know, you're you're ultimately trying to build trust and people need to trust you and see that, that you're authentic about what you're offering.
1: Can you speak to the impact that you saw occurring because of the private ambulance service when you were there?
2: Yeah, certainly. It's... Um, you know what's interesting, the entrepreneurs had started up in the ambulance business in part out of their own personal stories, incidents that had happened in their families, where somebody needed to get to the hospital quickly and there was no ambulance available to to call um so they had focused on building you know emergency medical transport in essence, getting somebody who needed medical help to a place where that help could be provided. And as they built the business, they started to realize they're part of a chain, a value chain. You know, they are um, taking people to hospitals, um, and if you're dropping somebody off at an emergency room, well, you need a certain standard of care at emergency rooms to ensure that that person survives. You know, they had started this service with the idea of improving emergency medical care um, by focusing on one piece of it, but they then started to collaborate with others around improving the quality of care in medical uh, emergency rooms at hospitals. Um, They were also realizing that as fast as an ambulance could get to an accident site, that often what was needed was somebody who was trained as a first responder to, to help that person out until the ambulance could get there and transport them. So while I was there, we started an initiative to train people in basic first aid. So they started to see that there are other links in the chain that while not part of their business, they could start having an influence on because it was important to delivering a greater impact over time. So I think that that's one area of of, of real impact that they had. Um, I think another area is helping people understand the importance of taking an ambulance when in medical need, that it's so valuable to saving lives compared to using a taxi or driving in your personal car or walking. Um, you know, an ambulance is really part of um, part of what's needed to to save lives. So those are some of the areas in which they had a broader impact. Um, you know, they also have partnered with government. Essentially, they have been. Um, uh, winning contracts from state governments that want to offer emergency medical services to people who live in those Indian states. Uh, but the government's not going to provide that service itself. It's contracting out for that. And this company does an excellent job of, of, of providing that sort of care. So it's been winning various state contracts. So it's you know, collaborating with governments as well around uh, highlighting the importance of a modern ambulance service to saving lives. So I think that's been impactful too on top of the impact that they've had on individual lives that they've saved.
1: Chris, is there any question that you wish that I had asked you or any comment that you want to leave the listeners with?
2: Well, let me just, uh, one other comment. Um, You know, I wanted to reflect a little bit more on the role that investment capital can play in the public health sector. Um, I focus most of the conversation on more or less what I do now, which is financing startup businesses. There are a lot of other ways in which investors in capital can be involved in generating social or environmental good. Uh, I was involved in an initiative when I worked at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition around the world's largest food and beverage companies, Um, the companies that make a lot of the processed food that people eat. Uh, and buy in grocery stores, and we were looking for ways in which we could influence those big companies to be more responsible around nutrition, both what can they do to address the needs of undernourished people by making more nutritious, healthier foods available and affordable to people who needed them, but also addressing diet-related chronic diseases in issues related to overnutrition or obesity. And what is the appropriate role of a company in those arenas? And how can investors influence those companies? And so we created something called the Access to Nutrition Index, which is a rating or ranking of, of the world's biggest food and beverage companies on their nutrition practices. And it You know, at the time, the first iteration of this, we were scoring companies on over 170 different criteria drawn from, as best as we could tell, best practices around what food and beverage companies can do to to improve. And we wanted to develop a transparent assessment system so that companies knew what actions they could take to improve their practices. But just as importantly, we wanted to provide this information to investors who invest for environmental and social impact so that when they are making decisions around how to allocate capital in publicly traded multinational companies, how can they better decide which companies to invest into for nutrition impact? And for companies that they've already invested in, how can they better engage with the management of those companies? And our operating theory was that you know, as a nonprofit, we could advocate that—that's helpful. But would big companies listen to to us as nutrition advocates? Uh, you know, maybe a little bit. Would they listen to their biggest investors when their investors are calling up and saying you have to improve your nutrition practices or we're not going to invest into you? That was what we thought could really have have an impact, make a difference in, in decision making. So I bring that up just as an example that if you are interested in the role that capital can play in generating positive environmental or social impact, there are multiple avenues to doing that. There are many different types of investors who invest in many different types of companies and projects. And there are ways in which you can use capital to generate that impact if you're thoughtful about it Um, in, in, so while I focused on where I sit in the ecosystem right now, which is very early stage venture investing, that's just one piece of a much bigger spectrum of where capital can be used for good.
1: What role do you think investors should be playing in, for example, shaping the nutrition policies and practices in emerging markets?
2: You know, I think investors, if they choose to, should should be playing a role in this area, um, there is a very big role for governments to play, certainly. So as investors, you need to understand where you sit with it, within this bigger system. But there are roles that investors can and should play. Um, so much of our food is produced, delivered, distributed by the private sector. So private companies play a role in our food system, no matter what. Um, good policy can shape how those private actors work to improve nutrition. Uh, investors can play a role as well uh, and can play uh, an influential role. And I would argue that it's in investors' best interest to pay attention to this. You know, We see a lot of health and wellness trends in the marketplace So there are actually big opportunities for savvy food companies to take advantage of by offering what health-conscious consumers are looking for. So investors need to understand those health and wellness trends and understand which companies are best positioned to meet consumer demand in that area. Um, So that's the opportunity side, but investors also need to be concerned about the risk side. If they are not paying attention to this, and companies are not paying attention to nutrition, there are quite a few risks out there that companies face that could have a negative impact on your investment in them. Um, There are lawsuits, litigation. um, There are tax proposals about taxing things like sugar in in beverages or in food products. Um, There is bad reputational risk for companies that don't uh, improve their nutritional practices. So investors need to understand where the risks lie and where the opportunities lie uh, and understand which companies are best positioned both to reduce those risks and to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, so there are roles that investors can play and uh, you know certainly investors can be part of a broader system-wide solution. And what impact did you see with that initiative? So a couple of things and I would say that this is these sorts of initiatives you really see the impact over a much longer term because when you're trying to influence the practices both of multinational food companies and of very large investors these are big ships that take a long time to turn. But you have to start somewhere. And I think some of the more immediate impacts we saw were statements by food and beverage companies recognizing the index and publicly stating actions that they would take to improve their nutrition practices before they were assessed again. Uh, From the investment standpoint, we saw a couple of investors, major institutional investors, citing the findings of of the index and its research uh, in their research on which companies uh, investors should invest into. So starting to use that data to inform investment decision-making and the allocation of capital. And our our kind of theory around how you could change things involves both, that companies themselves would use this assessment system to change their practices, and investors would also use it to change the way in which they allocate their capital and to influence how companies act. And we s- started to see that happening... know, right away through these various statements and use cases. Now, it's going to take years to see, does that actually result in concrete change on the ground and improvements in people's nutritional status? Um, There are also so many determinants of nutritional status that need to be taken into account. But certainly one of them is how people make decisions about what food to buy and consume and how they're influenced in those decisions by big companies.
1: Chris, I want to thank you so much for giving up your time today and for the listeners out there. If you want to learn more about Chris, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Chris Walker. If you want to learn more about Mercy Corps, you can find them online at mercycorps.org. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was my
2: pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Firefly Innovations podcast from the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. Keep an eye out for new episodes on our website at firefly-innovations.com or by following us on social media at CUNY Firefly Innovations.